Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. Today's episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks with a graphical UI for help desk or end users. Check it out on scriptrunner.com. What's up, Yussi? All good here. It was exactly 609 days ago that we sort of went to a semi-lockdown here in Finland. And that was also on the following week uh, back in 2020 when I did my last in-person conference. So I'm happy to share now that just last week, I attended a live in-person conference here in Finland. And I, I had the honor and duty to deliver the initial keynote for the conference. And for that to happen, I hopped on the train. I traveled three and a half hours to central Finland. I did have, uh, bring my, my uh, winter coat with me. I went in, I did my talk, and it was, it was weird. It was fun, of course, to see the live audience. But at the same time, it, it, it was a bit weird because for now, for 600 and what days, you're so used to just seeing 2D people over Teams or Zoom or something else. Now you have these living people in front of you, and you actually have to wear nicer pants because you can't use your comfy pants that nobody sees. <laughs> it was fun, though. And uh, sadly, though, because it was so far away from where I live, I couldn't stay the whole day. So I had to hop back in the train and travel three and a half hours back in time to pick up the kid from, from daycare. But yeah, I liked it. And I don't have anything else lined up in terms of a live event in the following months. So, so this will probably be the highlight from the, from the last few weeks of 2021 for me. All right, that sounds like fun. And like I think we mentioned in a couple of the episodes recently, it's uh, definitely something we all miss going to live conferences and, and speaking with actual people and face-to-face. So I'm, I'm a bit jealous, but at the same time, I spent my time slightly differently and I just made my own glug. So in Sweden, glug is called... Uh, or is known as mulled wine in English, I think. So it's kind of when you have this fermentation process that takes about three to six weeks, and then you have this alcoholic beverage uh, called mulled, mulled wine, or in, in Sweden it's called glug, or in Germany it's glühwein, uh, which is also, a, I think, fairly known word. So it's not going to sit for about three to six weeks, uh, depending on the strength, uh, which is the alcohol, and the clarity that I want. But I'm a little bit late to the game. Usually this happens in October, uh, the latest. But now we're already mid-November uh, when, when I start to, to look at these plans. So I'm leaning perhaps more toward three to four weeks. And then I'm going to batch it up uh, to the bottles. So I'm, I'm making 10 liters. So there's going to be quite a lot of it. And yeah, usually we bottle this up. And then I can hand it out to some neighbors. I can hand it out to some friends and family. And, and they can enjoy it as well. And if you like rum or, you know, a, a bit more spicy drinks, I think the malt wine comes out about 11% or so when I measured it last time. I think that's 
the fermentation process can bring it up to about 11%. At, at least I think that's what we got last time. If you want to spice it up so you get like the 30, 40%, then you have to bring some additional rum or vodka or some other liquor into it. And that can also put a, a nice flavor into that and, and give you this really Christmassy uh, feeling because the, the winter holiday is coming up. And at least for me, this is a not a tradition, but it's a fairly fun and cozy task to do with the family. And the kids are helping out, uh, obviously, with putting this stuff in the in the bin, not by drinking it. So it's a, it's a fun activity. And yeah, everyone is carefully checking the results now every day when it's uh, sitting there bubbling and fermenting. So really interesting uh, thing to do. But I'm, I'm greatly looking forward to the uh, results and, and reaping the fruits of, of, uh, of the labor. Now that you mentioned the, the German Glühwein, I've had that plenty of times when visiting Germany around Christmas time. They have these small uh, Christmas fairs, if you will. So, so there's an open market, market area or square. You go in there, you pay maybe two euro, which is about three dollars. And you get this, get this huge mug that you get to keep. And then you can go from stand to stand to try out the different glue vines. And that's always been something that I, that I feel it's, it's super, super natural in Germany because you're in good company. It's really, really, really cold. You're, you're hanging outside thinking if you should eat something, but then you're sipping the glue vine, which is often fairly strong at the same time. Sadly, in Finland, we don't have this, this sort of a tradition. We do have the same glug that you have, but that's, that's closer to juice, really. And if you want to spike it up, that's, that's something fairly new for us. So we don't really ferment it ourselves. We just go to the store and get whatever and then heat it up and it's done in two minutes. But for next year, I'm taking a hint from here and probably doing my own. So today, this is episode 110, Azure in Sweden. So big news, new data center in Sweden. This was already announced, I think almost a year ago that eventually there's going to be a new region and it will have new data centers. And that's called now Sweden Central. So what can you tell us about it? Because you live in Sweden, so I know you know everything about this <laughs> <Yeah>. new... <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know everything about this. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things. I mean, let's dive into uh, some of the specifics about the, uh, the stuff the data center can do or what this region can do for us. Uh, first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the data center itself. And my knowledge here is very limited. So I'm just going to talk about the things I know. Because of the climate in Sweden, um, which can be fairly cold, um, depending on where you're from, of course, not as cold as Finland, which you know all about. But because of the, the climate, they have something, you know, all the data centers and data center region, they seek zero waste certification. And that includes um, a Microsoft Circular Center. And this is something that they've designed to kind of extend the life cycle of servers. So when a server is, you know, out of capacity or uh, essentially something in, in that rack breaks down and you have to replace it. In the past, you would take that rack and destroy it and put a new rack in. But now they're taking that rack out and then repurpose the parts that actually still work. So you can save, you know, a, a lot of resources on that. So that's one thing, um, you know, it's, it's part of yeah, this kind of commercial product to deliver 100% uh, 
uh, renewable energy, which is also kind of cool. So I think they have uh, made a lot of effort in this area with free cooling. And Microsoft is utilizing now industry-leading cooling techniques, you know, combined with uh, the cloud's computing efficiency. And then, you know, because of the climate, again, you have these air filters and during cool outdoor temperatures, the outdoor air dampers, um, you know, the, it dampens and returns the, uh, the air in. I don't know exactly how this works. Obviously, I'm not a, an air or ventilation engineer but it, it brings the cool air in to cool things down. And during the hot days, it, it can bring in and modulate or regulate the, the filters to bring in or close you know, those gaps. So it's a lot about getting free cooling. Again, I don't know the intricate details of how that works. I just know that they made a, a huge deal about this and they made a press release about this. And they had these dampers in the ceilings that bring warm return air from the servers into the gallery. And then during the warm outdoor temperatures, the kind of outdoor air dampers are fully open. And during the cool outdoor temperatures, the, the outdoor air dampers, um, you know, they return air uh, and modulate together to heat the data center. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. But again, I'm not an engineer in, in that area, which I'm happy uh, that there are people qualified to, uh, to deal with that. Another thing that I noticed in that press release and uh, when I read it was that they are harvesting rainwater because obviously the climate here, it rains a lot. Uh, especially during you know, late spring, early spring, winter, and autumn, you know, uh, this region features free cooling, and then the direct evaporation of water is used to produce uh, something called humidification with limited energy consumption. So, instead of having these expensive devices to humidify the air, which you sometimes need to do using you know expensive air conditioning tools and whatever, then you use the rainwater to do that. So you can kind of evaporate that to create the humidity. So that's also pretty cool. It's a simple and cost-effective uh, method. And I think you save about 30%. And uh, so you, you reduce the energy cost and then 90% less of water usage because you, you pick the, the rainwater. So it's pretty cool. Again, nothing specific about how the data center works, but more on the reasoning, perhaps why they put that in Sweden and why they wanted to have one there, other than what we might talk about a bit later, like regulatory stuff and, and more data centers within the EU and Swedish companies wanting to have data inside of Sweden, of course. Yeah, I think those are the main things that I picked out from the one of the press releases. And I think these are important and interesting aspects uh, because I, I don't know if it was Ignite last year or yeah, whatever it was, Microsoft went on the big drum and said, we are going to be carbon negative as an entire company by whatever year. But don't recall the year, uh, but not too long, not too distant future. And I guess this is just a, another step in that direction, right? To not produce more than you consume in, in terms of the carbon footprint and reusing what's already there, reusing what's around you from nature without re-releasing that hot air into the atmosphere, but instead uh, repurposing that to heat uh, you know, the air channels in the data centers. So it makes a lot of sense. But I think there's someone who actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and designing this. And, and as I'm talking about it, I realize I know nothing about it. I just read the <laughs> press release and I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I think we are far past the time when 10, 15 years ago, you would have a customer who would call you and say, hey, we need a new data center. You would hop in your van, you would drive to this unmarked location with this building with no windows, and you would simply start assembling servers in there. 
and and my perception of of a new Azure region and and Azure data center becoming available is is slightly hopefully different. But the location it's it's in Sweden and it's I think it's a city or a county. I know how it reads. I'm fairly certain I cannot pronounce it. So let me try first and and, and then 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 you can correct me. So it's in in a in a city perhaps named Gävle. Gävle? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very accurate pronunciation. It is a city and it's called Gävle. So that was uh, that was spot on. And okay. what I do know is that there are three data centers coming. I don't know the status of the other ones. I know that we talk now about uh, Yavle, but then there's also one in Staffanstorp, which is just outside of where I live. I think it's about 20 minutes from, from my house. So it's one fairly fairly nearby. And then there's one other one, perhaps that was Sandvik or something else. Yeah, some somewhere else. Uh, so I, I think they talked about three data centers in total. Okay, okay. And and this is physically located, I, I think, north of Stockholm, right? Yeah, that, that's all I know about it. Any, anything above Stockholm, I know nothing about. That's yeah, the northern Sweden to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so for me, this is an optimal location, though, because I'm based in, in Helsinki, and this is about 500 kilometers away from me, which is, what, 900 miles or so. So this is the closest one. And And if you're not using Azure services in, in the EU region, perhaps you're based in, in the US. This would be akin to having uh, West Europe and North Europe. Those are the main main uh, regions and, and locations we have here in Europe. Uh, it would be the same as having one in New York and another in, in, in Dallas, Texas, and that's it. So, so having more choice now is definitely better. So this is available now, and yesterday when the announcement was done, so yesterday as, as time of time of uh, recording this, uh, I logged into Azure Portal. I tried deploying something to the Swedish data center, and it worked. So it's immediately available. And my understanding is that that data residency, whatever I deploy to Sweden Central, will remain in Sweden Central. Uh, since the topic we talked about maybe ten episodes ago. Where is my data? Meaning that certain bits of Azure AD might be replicated to the US for certain reasons, mostly for MFA and verification. Okay, so this is in Sweden. And even if you're not planning on using anything in Sweden, everything we now talk about would apply to other Azure regions as well. So, so how would you go about checking if you have a new Azure data center? How would you go about deciding? If you want to migrate everything there or not, is do you, do you have some sort of a process that you would use for this? Um, I I think there is a few different answers to that question, uh, or perhaps more a discussion than just an answer, because it's uh, like we talked about in many of the episodes. And and if you're an avid listener to this show, you know that I talk a lot about security and compliance, and this that that's a topic that's close to uh, to my heart and something that I work a lot with. So, you know, for me, number one would be, is there a reason to move? Number one, you know, because it becomes available doesn't mean that I need to move there just because it's closer. And number two is the, uh, the things we deploy and operate serving customers outside of Sweden, which in my case it is, then it perhaps makes no sense. Even it would uh, perhaps decrease the latency for me, it might increase the latency for anyone else. 
So I, you know, ask the right questions first approach is what I would start by doing. There's a new region. Do we need to take action? And, and that is based on a bunch of different reasoning, depending on which organization you talk to. And I would also say that, you know, you don't migrate just for the sake of migration. Uh, if there are regulatory compliance requirements for your organization to keep data in Sweden whenever applicable, then this is something hot on the topic and you can start looking at that. If there are no regulatory compliance requirements other than keep the data within the EU or maybe you don't even have that as a requirement, then I would not start looking at it. And there's, of course, you know, technically how to do a move. You can, you know, you can use the, the move tool or whatever it's called in Azure and say, hey, I want to move the data from here to there or move my services. Some of the services are easy to move. Others, perhaps not as easy. But I think the, the question here is not the technical one. The, the question is the use case and uh, perhaps the legal implications of migrating or not migrating. At least that's that's my point of view. So the, the technical migration, we can always get that done. Uh, the question is to me, why do we need to do that? Uh, and or do we need to do that? And if so, how important is that? And what is the impact for the organization and for the end users? Okay. Beyond sort of the legal reasoning and, and, and whatnot, now that we have one more data center, which is closer than the ones we've been using West Europe uh, in the Netherlands and North Europe in Ireland, it of course imposes the additional question, is it cheaper? Is it more affordable to use this one? I I did spend a few minutes checking the prices and and Obviously, you have the Azure calculator, which you can use, use to check the prices. But then you have an API also at prices.azure.com. It's a REST API, and you can call that to check the exact prices. I did a really quick comparison between West Europe and Sweden on a couple of select elements like virtual machines. But the challenge is that the services usually on a new Azure data center are a bit more limited as opposed to something you've had for 10 years now. So I couldn't really find a clear match that if I had a specific type of VM running in West Europe, how much would it cost if I migrate that to the new data center, which would be Sweden. Uh, so that made me thinking that perhaps I need to have some sort of a comparison table to see what's available, what's coming, what's missing. And there's actually one already. So the link is in the show notes, but in there you can select one or multiple regions and have them compared side by side. And looking as an example now, looking at West Europe against Sweden Central, I can see that all the foundational services like Events Hubs and Azure Storage, all the core things, they're there. But anything sort of exotic or a sort of premium, like Azure Cognitive Services, Azure Databricks, Azure Open Datasets, uh, HD Insights, all of those, not there yet. For some, there's an expected date for general availability. Mostly it's by end of 21 or Q1 22. So in the next five months or so, it's more or less up to speed with West Europe, which is a good news. 
But for I, the prices, I think, this is a, yeah. I think this is a good thing to mention, uh, and I like that you bring this up. Number one, because of that uh, comparison tool that you mentioned, we'll put in the show notes. It's pretty nice to see this side by side. I'm actually looking at it uh, right now, and there's a lot of things uh, missing. So, like the core services you mentioned are there, but if you use Azure Container Instances or Azure Functions or some of these, which I would today call pretty standard uh, services, then they are not there yet. Uh, it says right now that they're expected in Q1 2022. Uh, so that's not too far out. Uh, but I think this, you know, I will revise my previous statement on uh, my roadmap. And I would say this is my number one step. First of all, before I even go into dialogues with, you know, cross company, uh, cross team about, you know, any requirements of moving, I need to make sure that the technical implementation of that data center is actually on par with whatever data center we already have. So here I could then put West Europe and Sweden Central next to one another. And I can see that container instance functions and a couple of other things that I am using every day is not supported right now as of this recording. So that will be supported, but not right now. So I would add that as step number one to my previous statement. So that's a, that's a very good point that you bring up. Um, and I would probably recommend anyone listening into this, whether you're interested in Sweden central or not, uh, whatever region you operate out of, take a look at this thing. I, I have not looked here for a long time and this is, it's really refreshed. And I really like to see this side by side here. It's a super comprehensible comparison. So in terms of capabilities, I did have a question on Twitter from somebody. Uh, if there's the possibility of running, for example, Power Platform services now in the new data center. And I wasn't really sure where to look because when you deploy Power Platform or anything in Microsoft 365, you don't select the specific region, you select Europe. And, and then the assumption is that it's North or West Europe that it's mostly utilizing. But we already in the EU region, we have Norway, we have France, we have Germany. I cannot select those in Power Platform. So I, I did find a Power BI report that Microsoft is publishing. It's in dynamics.microsoft.com. I will put the link in the show notes as well. And that actually lists all the Power Platform services and then pinpoints on what the geographic availability is for that specific service. So as an example, if I select Power Apps Portals, which is the sort of premium service in Power Platform, it's telling me it's available in West and North Europe and in France Central and France South and so on. But Sweden is not yet on this list. So, so I think that for a lot of these reporting tools and documentation, it will take a few weeks to get updated for any recent changes. And the same would apply if we had a new data center, perhaps in Africa, it would take a little bit of time to actually get that visible in all of the reports. But for Microsoft 365 capabilities, I think this was in the press release, they mentioned that eventually, the new Sweden Central will also be capable of hosting M365 workloads like Exchange Online and SharePoint and Teams and whatnot. But for now, I don't think at least many of those are yet available because it's still early days. And typically what I've seen, it, it takes about six months for everything to light up. And I, I think it makes sense because if they lighted up everything on the first day, and then if there's a hiccup or capacity problem, it's really hard to try and fix that. 
But if you light them up in a slower cadence, let's say, give it six more months so that people get used to this and you see that the foundational services are actually performing well, then it's easier to keep on adding future things in there. So before we talk about migration to a new data center, would you happen to have any tools or insights in how would you test a new Azure data center for perhaps for latency or performance? Because the, the, the default tool I think that everybody's using is azurespeed.com to see the latency. But obviously that's not updated yet. But do you have anything else you would use or is this really relevant that, that you would even think about this? So when it comes to latency and stuff like that, that's not super important for, for me. We already operate most of our things in a microservice architecture with multiple regions. So whenever we deploy something, we, uh, we have the option to deploy in a region close to the customer. Uh, so we don't really or particularly have that issue because we don't run VMs. You know, oftentimes you have this, uh, when you have an organization, like we're a SaaS company, we offer SaaS services to our customers, which are hosted in Azure. But if you're an organization where some of the workloads you use every day are hosted in Azure, like a VM or a set of VMs, then the latency becomes perhaps a bit more important because it's your location that de determines your, your daily productivity um, in, a, in relation to the data center. So for me, I wouldn't have that um, requirement today uh, at least with network and, and latency, because everything we do is already lightning fast in the cloud. Everything we build, we can scale up easily to uh, to serve the global audience. And anything we build, we can build in, uh, you know, globally distributed caching. So we can have, you know, all the capabilities of the cloud with, it's at our fingertips. So as long as we don't like depend on the specific networking for VMs or anything like that, then for me, it's not important. What I use and what I look at is usually like Azure Resource Mover. Uh, also from inside the Azure portal, you can go and say, hey, I wanna move this resource over here. I wanna move that resource over there. I have moved resources cross subscriptions. I've also moved resources cross regions. So for me, I think, Step number one, like we talked about before, is determine do you want to move and why to establish kind of the, the business case. Step number two is to evaluate the technical requirements to move, depending on what kind of services you operate. And for me, I have mostly regional services that are perhaps not super critical with the latency and the location because the users of our services are worldwide. So it doesn't matter if we put it in central Sweden or if we put it in West Europe or if we put it in central U.S., because there's going to be users from all over the world anyway. So I, so I think for, for my personal perspective, I, I don't reflect much on that, but I would use the, the default approach with the Azure Resource Mover that worked well in the past. Makes sense, makes sense. What I wanted to do is I, I wanted to do a quick test to verify the latency that if I ever move something from West Europe to Sweden Central, or let's say from West Europe to somewhere else, that I could have some solid figures to compare against. And my, my, my first sort of idea was to provision an Azure storage account, one in West Europe, one in Sweden Central. And then I foolishly thought that I'll, I'll just ping them and compare the differences. 
everything went well until I started pinging and then I realized, well, they're blocking ICMP protocol. So ping doesn't go through. <laughs> but then I figured, well, hold on, Sys internals has a tool for this. It's called PSPing. It does the same thing, but over TCP. So you can actually ping a specific port. And what I did is I used PSPing to ping the storage account in both regions on port 80, because that always works. And, and for me, the difference is that from Helsinki to West Europe, it's about 25 milliseconds on average. And from Helsinki to this new one in, in Sweden, it's 10 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's twice as fast. But obviously, since, since there's more limited services, it's not the only factor that I need to look at. But let's say a year from now, if I had a customer suggesting that, hey, we need Azure Virtual Desktop, obviously I would go for Sweden Central because mm -hmm. the latency would be lower and it's that much closer than the Netherlands. On, on Azure Resource Mover, uh, have you had any problems with this ever? Because the last time I used this, I had one DNS zone configured in, in uh, West Europe. And I wanted to move that to North Europe. I can't recall why, but it made sense at the time. And I went to Azure Portal. I selected the, the asset. I select move this to there. It ran for five minutes, then it failed. And when it failed, the original resource group didn't have the DNS element anymore. The destination didn't have it anymore. And it was not available in resources.azure.com. So it just disappeared. And I figured, yeah. okay, let me not use this for a year and let's come back if it's more stable. But you mentioned that you've been using it a bit, but did you have any problems with this ever? Sure. <laughs> that's, my, that's my final answer. So, yes, I did. I do not recall the exact details right now, but what the story you tells reminds me of, of similar issues that I've had. I don't believe there's any tool in, in any portion of the cloud that is 100% you know, fault-free. And I moved resources a long time ago between different regions. Same thing there. I, I had to try and move them. And you, you can kind of evaluate with a mover tool if it's going to work or not, because it's going to run kind of a, a test mode. So you, what you could do, and this is recollected from memory, so feel free to correct if I'm wrong here. But I, I think after the initial move, you can decide whether you want to commit the move or if you want to discard it. And if you discard the move, you can do that if you're testing and you don't want to actually move the resources or, or don't want to move the source resource. Discarding the move would then return the resource to the state of initiate move pending. And if you chose commit, that completes the move to the target region. After committing then the source resource will be in the state of delete source pending, and you can decide if you want to delete it. Now, what I recall from this is something similar to what you just said, that you know, the thing you, you expected was not in the source uh, resource, and it was also not in the destination, and that's a problem. And I recall having the same issue with, I don't know if it was a virtual network or if it was some integral component uh, or, or peripheral type of resource to our workloads, uh, moving between regions, some of these things could not be moved. So after figuring that out, what I did was I selected everything except for, I think it was two resources that could not be moved. I selected everything else and moved them over. 
Uh, so first I disconnected from, I think this was a network. So I disconnected from the network and I moved everything over to the new region. And then I recreated it there and connected it. And that worked. So it was a bit of manual labor. And, and yeah, again, I don't think this is a seamless kind of experience, especially moving, because you're essentially moving data centers, right? You're, you're moving everything you have out of one data center into another one. And it's not just a click of a button, uh, you know, like when you scale up or scale down a web app. And uh, there's a bit more happening on the back end. So you're, you're essentially changing the entire backbone infrastructure of your applications and workloads. So I, I would be careful, as always, with anything migration, be careful and evaluate uh, what you're doing. But on the other hand, I never did any huge migrations. Most of the things, if I need to migrate or replicate something I have in a new region, I use ARM templates or now BICEP templates that are running and deploying ARM resources. And then I might migrate the data, but I, I have no real reason today to migrate the actual resources because I can set them up uh, because using infrastructure as code. And I think we talked you know, in the previous episode about Azure BICEP, how you can use that for infrastructure as code with Azure policy and policy as code. Same thing applies when you deploy resources. If you have infrastructure as code here and you do that, you can set a lot of things up in your regions. So I could replicate what we're operating in our microservice architecture today, for example, in the Sweden central region. And then I would have to decide what data to move. And the data would be in Azure database for PostgreSQL in our case, or in Azure storage accounts. And a data migration there is super easy, right? So I, I wouldn't even have to care about how to migrate resources with the, the resource migrator, unless it's about deprecating the region you're currently using and moving everything over. In our case, it's always about expanding regions and supporting more regions. So I, th- I think there it's, again, it depends. But to answer the, you had a simple question, so let me return a simple answer. Have I had issues with uh, the moving resources and the mover tool? Yes. I've had issues. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And and the example you gave, I, I feel that a lot of companies I interact with, they often have the need, we need to migrate this to there because of business reasons. And and then you often only have the op- op- option to use as a resource mover because there's some elements that have to be moved instead of, of migrated in the sense that let's provision a new copy and somehow move the data across. There might be IDs or storage accounts or VMs or something that's a bit more complex to reprovision if you can just move it. Okay, um, this makes sense. Uh, I plan on testing this new data center that we have now, but I'm not planning on migrating everything I have in West Europe and North Europe because I'm really happy with them already. But, but perhaps I will now keep Sweden as a viable option when planning for future deployments with customers. They might feel that, well, the latency is there, or perhaps um, there's a cost benefit of using Sweden. Something might be slightly cheaper. But at the same time, I often feel that if something is slightly cheaper, it doesn't really, really tip the scale at all, because it's more about security and reliability than saving five euro here or there on the total cost. Okay, so this was, I think this was everything we had on the new data center as as well as how do you plan and approach a new data center opportunity. The last thing we have is the unexpected question. And it's me today asking you, Toby, are you ready? Shoot. If you could get rid of any household chore, 
for good eternally. So that somehow somebody else would do it without you needing to worry about it, and you would be satisfied with the end result. Which one would you choose? This is the easiest question ever. Uh, emptying the dishwasher. Oh, really? Yes. I, I die on the inside every time I have to do it. Uh, I have no problem, and, and this is the funny thing, I have no problem taking the, the dirty dishes uh, with my hands and putting that in there. And, you know, you can have all kinds of shit on the, on the plates and, and be really greasy and whatever. No problem. But emptying it, it's such a mental block for me. I have this shiny new dishes sitting there, and it's just about taking them and putting them into the cabinets, and it's so boring. But I think <laughs> I, I enjoy putting things into the dishwasher more because I can structure it, you know, and I can... Every time I do it, I have a way to optimize it and make it efficient and put as many things as possible to save water and whatever. So I can, I think at least I'm saving on the environment by, by thinking in this positive way. But when it comes to emptying the dishwasher, I am dying inside. I will literally do anything except for that. And, and I actually don't do it. We have an agreement at home where I put everything into the dishwasher and and she takes everything out and puts them into the uh, the cabinet. So I have to deal with the dirty dishes every day, and I'm okay with that. That's fine. I will not empty the dishwasher ever in my life again. At least I hope so. You know, worst case, I can do it, but I'm really dying on the inside, and I don't know why. I just <laughs> do not like it. <laughs> so so sounds to me like like you've sort of resolved this this problem already. I read someplace that we have fancy machines like the laundry and, and the dishwashing machine. They already, the machines, they already do 90% of the work. Why is it so hard to do the last 10%? I don't know, but it always is. Yeah. So I have one more answer because like you said, we already solved this issue. I don't, I don't need to get rid of this chore because I already did in a way through our <laughs> mutual agreement in the household. So the other thing is folding laundry, yeah. you know, ironing and folding laundry. If this could be automated in whatever way, if, if automation in this case means someone else does, does it for me, that's okay. So if, if I could get rid of something else, folding laundry, so you always open the wardrobe and it's in perfect condition with, you know, ironed, folded perfectly, just ready to go. Yeah, I could go for this, definitely. I often take out the laundry from, from the machine, put them, put them uh, where, where we dry them up, and then bring everything upstairs. You have a huge pile of clothes. Then you start going through the socks. There's 2,000 different socks. Who's this? Who's that? I, I just put them all in, in, in a smaller pile and ask my, my kids to, to pick whatever fits you. I don't really care about the pairing. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, this was episode 110, Azure in Sweden. Thank you again for joining us and until next week. All right, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>